So we are in first and second. We've been studying first and second Samuel. And most of you probably uh, have, you know, enjoyed working through it. The last couple of chapters have been difficult. This chapter, uh, shocking. I mean, there's no question. Uh, for some of you, maybe even, you're just like, I can't believe uh, you're studying this on a Sunday morning, you know? It's, it, is, it is a very difficult uh, passage and hard to believe in some ways. And so I hope today it will be a reminder that the Bible is clear and upfront about very difficult things. Um, the other thing is just to think about just, uh, you know, sometimes, and, and we can step away from biblical passages and kind of just think about issues and maybe even find some pleasure in it, uh, you know, like getting to, to see all these different troubles going on. Uh, we, we even do that in our own world where it's like the royal family is doing this and doing that. And some people spend their whole lives studying about uh, the royal families and what they're doing, the issues that are going on in their lives. And, and I think sometimes we can do a, a biblical passage that way where we'd be like, remember that story? I mean, that was pretty rough, you know. And you kind of tell it and then just not really make much of it or address it or really think about uh, the ramifications, and you can kind of separate yourself from it and forget that these are real people with real issues, you know. Uh, I do think it's interesting, like in with famous people, uh, we can do that, and that's big business, you know, just to look at everybody, uh, the situations going on in their lives, and you're kind of keeping up with it minute by minute today. What's the next thing that's going to happen in this uh, saga? I remember when I was in high school, this is dating me, but the O.J. Simpson trials were taking place. And uh, I remember one of my friend's moms was like really into that. And so every time I saw her, uh, that's what she was talking about was the O.J. Simpson kind of trial, you know, going on. And uh, it was just one of those things like, you know, that people uh, died, you know, and you know that there's horrific things that happen. And yet, you know, you kind of just, I don't know, almost like see it as a form of entertainment. That's kind of how our cult culture sees it, you know. Uh, and whenever there's a great tragedy, um, again, it's not like you're generally like even maybe weeping over the situation. You're just kind of trying to get more news than the other person over. I mean, it's, but that happens not on a macro level, but also on a micro level, like in people's lives. It's really, really frightening. And so we have to kind of understand that and see that. And, and, and grasp that um, we want to read this and really see it for what it is, call it what it is, and then come away with some sense of like, I, want to, to, I don't want to in any way contribute to walking down this kind of road. So again, like in chapters 11 and 12, David has committed adultery and murdered. Chapter 12, God shows his displeasure by uh, David facing extreme circumstances as a result. Uh, and maybe, you know, not so extreme, but divine discipline is very uh, clear. And God said something to him. So if you'll just kind of flip back to chapter 12 and verses 10 through 12 in 2 Samuel, it says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. This is what God is saying to David. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So what David's done in the dark is now going to be exposed. So, today, what do you do with today? You're looking at chapter 13. We are going to see his family. And we're going to see the royal family in the darkest of situations. Things that you're like, is this really uh, the royal family of the people of God? Is this really this kingdom that will never end? I mean, what in the world is going on? In this chapter today, we see the sin of the father show up in the life of his children. Today we will observe the mess that sin makes of this family, and we just kind of are going to have to have just, in my mind, like pick up some things that we can observe from it. But again, we're reminded of the sins of the father showing up in the life of his children, and it should break our hearts. This is one of those chapters where you're just like, man, I just can't. I don't know, I, I don't even like to think about all the things that are going on here. Now, I have leaned heavily on this guy, Davis, this, this uh, commentator. I'm going to do that again this week because I think there are some things that he does in framing out how to look at this chapter that just absolutely uh, help me think about the framework for it. And so, <clears throat> I'm not going to take credit for, uh, although I do sometimes, but I'm trying not to take credit for some of the things that he brings out, and I'll point that out to you. Ready? The first is this, just an observation, the perversion we ought to abhor. That's the first 22 verses. It's kind of, it is showing you in a very raw form something you should hate. Second, the persons we ought to observe and what you're going to do is we're going to look at four men in this chapter 13. And you're just going to, to look at them and say, we're going to see a negative aspect of their response to this situation. Just one kind of summary thing, and we'll get there. But, and then the third, the perspective we ought to keep. So in light of this horrific evil being done in this royal family... And in light of all the responses to it, what, what do we do with that? I mean, this is, God had made a promise to David and to his descendants after him. Like he made a covenant with him. And his family would be the royal family. And ultimately, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. God's commitment, covenantal commitment to David and his family stood. And so what perspective kind of do we keep as we think about all of these things? Now remember, David has a number of wives and therefore a number of children. And just when you're thinking about what's going on, one of his daughters, who is beautiful, is raped by one of his sons. And again, we'll see the responses by several people in the picture, and we'll conclude it and look at kind of how do we deal with all of this together. 
So let's, let's move forward. Ready? So the perversion, let's just look at that, that we ought to abhor in verses uh, 1 through 22 is what we're going to see. But again, you kind of already know the story. We read it. Tamar is very beautiful. Amnon, one of his sons, uh, is lust sick over her. That's the way I would think of that. Um, by the way, if you're, uh, <laughs> as a young man here, and as like a young woman here, I just think it's important to understand uh, interest in someone is not a sign of like genuine love for them. That's just, just kind of like chalk that up and write that down. Just because somebody says, oh, I really like you. That's not a sign of like this pure heartfelt, biblical, godly love, right? Okay, so just note that because that will help you as you move forward through life and walk in wisdom. But anyway, thinking about this, you're considerate, you're looking over it. He wants her, but he doesn't really want her. He wants her body. That's the picture here. And this kind of scheme is developed, and she is told by her father, look, Amnon is sick, go help him out. So she goes and cooks a meal, takes it to him, and in verses 9 through 11, you see, in verse 9, she brings um, the food to him, he's lying there sick. Amnon sends everyone out of the room. She says, bring the, he says, bring the food closer into my chamber. He grabs her. He asks her to lie with him. She responds to him. And she responds with like uh, wisdom. And he will not listen. But I want you to see a couple of things because we're kind of focusing in on her for just a moment. And I want you to see this. She pleads with him not to violate her. And you'll notice she seeks to reason with him. Notice what she says in verses 12 and 13. She says to him, this thing is not done in Israel. So that's always kind of a, a, one of those aspects of things where you're saying, this is, this is way out of the ordinary. What you're seeking to do here is not something that, that, that would ever be done here should never be done here we are God's covenant people we understand what love is we understand what restraint is we understand what it means to be good to one another we know what it means to serve and bless and God said all that stuff to us we don't behave in that way this is wrong in this case it's more than rape it's incest so it's just it's clearly a violation. Second, she states, where am I going to carry my shame? If you do these things to me, I will carry this with me all the rest of my life. She's trying to say, look at the cost. Third, she says, you're an outrageous fool. For thinking that this is a good thing. You will be named among those who, if I were to say, 
who are the worst people in the Bible. He would be high on the list of the absolute worst people that I have ever heard of. You will be known as one of the wicked men, foolish men, outrageously foolish men. Fourth, <clears throat> she appeals to the fact that, and again, there's think, questions you might have about how does this work, but if you were just to ask the king, he would give me to you. But that's not what this man wants. He does not listen to her at all. And so he violates her in verse 14. But this is what I want you to see in verse 15. Because, again, you're thinking about the situation that we should hate, that we should be, this is disgusting, this is a stench, this is the kind of thing that you, you can't even imagine happening. In verse 15, though, it says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her I, I, it, it is shocking his lust sickness is now gone and now that thing that made him sick with longing is now he hates it he is now casting her aside. His response to her is get up and go. Verse 16 and 17. She appeals again, but he would not listen. Verse 17. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out. Not his sister, not one of the, the women of the king's uh, family, not in any way, in any way honoring her. He has her thrown out, and he says, bolt the door behind her. We go on to see her wearing a dress from her former glory. Look at verse 18. She dressed like because she was one of the virgin daughters of the king's family, right? Verse 19, but she tears this long robe, puts ashes on her head, and is crying. You, I mean, you just in this moment, you're looking at this situation and you're saying, this is one of the most horrific things that you might have seen in Scripture. And just to comprehend it is enough to say, do I hate these things? Do I abhor these things? Verse 20. What you see in the end of verse 20 is this. Tamar lived a desolate woman. What, what does that mean? She lived 
in a barren land. She lived forsaken. That's what she lived. She was laid waste is kind of the picture. She's broken. So in this story, she's trapped, ignored, violated, despised, banished, and ruined. Do you love like reading about that? You like searching information about that, flipping through magazines about that. You, you love those stories and get to say, did you see what happened with so-and-so? I mean, that stuff sells. Did y'all know that? It is dangerous to find this intriguing, a form of entertainment, entertaining in some way that just, you know, is in a very broken way. As Christians, we should abhor what is evil. We should hate things like this. And it should shock us. And it should be something that we are striving to stamp out. It is not to be embraced. It's not to be tolerated. It's not to be looked past. It's not to be one of those things where it's like, well, sometimes things kind of get out of hand. So, we should abhor it. Second, I, th I think, and as he said, like, you ought to observe a few things. And we're going to look at four different men and their responses. The first one is Amnon, of course. He's at the center of the first uh, 22 verses. And what he titled this was Passion Without Love. He has these cravings. It, you know, for some people, again, uh, you know, you might say, oh, he just really loves her. He just really is longing for her. He's lovesick. No, he's not lovesick. He's not. He has a form of sickness, but it is not that. When you look at him, he will not listen. He will not listen to reason. He will not listen to wisdom. He is totally driven by his passions and desires. He is dominated by that so much so that nothing will stop him. Is this kind of behavior ever celebrated in our culture? I mean, if you were to, to, to look at contemporary like videos, listen to contemporary music, uh, identify the different topics that are on display, put those words up and lay those out before you and say, okay, the meaning of this word is this, and this word is this, and this word is that. And you're to lay all those things out. Are there time, Could you go through the body of music that is... Uh, a, a part of our culture or videos or whatever, discussions or television or whatever and say, 
I see this in contemporary culture. I see this celebrated in contemporary culture. And I mean, absolutely, we would say, yes, I do. I see that. I see that on display. I see the brokenness. And I would just say that we need to recognize here, again, his lustful longings result in a hatred once satisfied. He wants nothing. After his lusts are satisfied, he wants nothing to do with, he wants to shut it out forever. So I think just for us, we say, look, love serves. Love sacrifices. Love puts the need of the other first. Love restrains itself for what is good. Love is kind. We have to, in this culture, we're having to constantly bring ourselves back and say, what is a biblical definition of love and do we see that being manifest in our lives? And when those cravings or desires come up, we have to say, is that right? Is that good? Is that true? Is that noble? And if not, stamp it out. Because passion without love is not what we are after. So we should hate what is evil and we should recognize, listen, there are all these perversions going on around us. And they are called, they're using the same terms in the sense of like, in the English language, we might say love and something pops up into your mind. But in a biblical framework, we have to back up and say, what does that look like? The second person we look at is Jonadab. And, and this guy, again, man, he just, I feel like it's very helpful. He speaks of wisdom without principle. In verses 3 through 5, what you find out is Amnon is love, or lust sick, and he's in this situation, and he's saying he doesn't know what to do. And so there's this man there that steps up and says, I know what to do. I know what to do. He was wise. He's very crafty. He was sharp. He knows how to make situations work out in one's favor. He stages everything. He's like, you know, you've watched those movies where you can see Amnon sitting there. And the guy's saying to him, listen, this is what you do, and leave the rest up to me. You have, you have one thing to do. Act like you're sick, and I'll take care of the rest. He is staging it all. If you needed something done, you called Jonadab because he would find a way to get it done. Later, he's going to show up again with David and everybody's going to be freaking out and, and, and Jonadab's not. He's like, he was out to get Amnon 
all your sons aren't dead like just Amnon's dead. He's a very wise person. So what do you learn from that when you're looking at observing this person? What makes him kind of dangerous, you could say? <clears throat> because he has skill without scruple, wisdom without ethics, and insight without integrity. It's not wrong to be wise. You need people in the world that can work out issues. People that can address things. People that when everybody's lost their head can think clearly. You need that. But if it comes without wisdom, without ethics, if there's no ethics, if there's no integrity, then you're in a really horrible situation. And that's, again, what you see. We're looking at the royal family. We're looking at those surrounding the royal family. One author noted, it warns us to pray that if God has given us some prudence, He would also add integrity and sincerity that we may keep ourselves from craftiness. And we have to be honest, is that something just outside in the world that happens? Absolutely not, even in the church. It's sometimes like the church loves to take somebody really young and exalt them to the highest places. I mean, they, they do. Before they have time to see, be seasoned uh, in the Word of God and in godly living and walking with the Lord, I mean, they love to just throw them up as this beacon of light, as this, oh, they're so gifted, they're so wonderful, they're so this, they're so that. Or maybe even like you have people that you'd say that. You'd be like, oh, I just love to hear uh, him preach. And he's got this wonderful voice. And he's got this ability to like speak in some way that, I mean, he just tells it like it is. I mean, he's just, you know, you're like, I mean, you always just want to be like, oh my goodness, are you serious? Like that, Anna talked to me recently, we were talking about that. And she was just like, that always seems to end up in failure. Like, grievous failure. And so, I think it's just important that you could say, whatever gifts that you may have been given, if they are not used in a way to bring glory to God and the good of others, if you're not filled with integrity, if you're not trying to do what is right and good, I mean, it is a scary, scary picture here. Wisdom without principle. You may be very wise and very capable, but not driven by principle, and it could be very destructive. Third, just again, we're just glancing at a few people here. In verse 13 through 21, when King David heard all these things, he was angry. But again, Davis calls this anger without justice. Have you ever seen maybe a parent so mad at their child but not really holding them accountable? <laughs> it's like a, David forgot that he was judged. And you might say, well, I mean, David had just been through some situations himself. He felt bad because, like, how's he going to hold his kid to this when... You know, but he has just, God has just dealt very forthrightly with David. And God did not take the kingdom away. 
And David still had a responsibility in the kingdom to hold what was right and good. It's interesting, you, you can have this kind of situation where, and that's what he's, it seems like what he's doing, that he would have a standard, and, and everybody else was to live up to this perfect standard except for his kids. I mean, most parents are guilty of this to some point, but some are more prone to it than others. This type of behavior demanded more than anger, but action. David acts in an unprincipled manner. He has anger without justice. He is like a second Eli. Again, another example here just of seeing, saying like, man, this is not uh, the way that you want the royal family to be acting. There's a certain way that's fitting for them. And when there's not that, when you don't see that, when that's not on display, it's going to be costly. It's going to lead to insanely horrible situations. They, there has to be justice. There has to be You have to be doing what is right. So, we say four people, one passion without love, another wisdom without principle, a third anger without justice, fourth, Absalom, hatred without restraint. Absalom was one of those guys that could face a situation and it be so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the picture. He wanted Amnon to pay. Like, his dad did not execute justice, but Absalom just took it and set it aside and held on to it. And he held on to it for two years. And then he took the law into his own hands, and he had his brother struck down. That's the picture here. That's the kind of thing where we've just been studying Titus, where, but for the goodness and kindness of God, like we are hateful, hating one another. There is murder, like growing up in our hearts. And here is Absalom holding on, and then he unleashes his fury, takes the law into his own hands, and he strikes down his brother. So, if you were to like look at all this and you say, man, This is what God's kingdom's like. This is what the royal family's like. Isn't this an amazing situation? I'm glad I came this Sunday just to get a perspective of like how the kingdom looks and what it's supposed to be like. You know, the reality is, is if you live long enough and you walk alongside the people of God and you look at things, you're going to see stuff that's going to be very discouraging. You're going to maybe have those moments where you're at this height of like, man, things are are great you're going to look at situations and you're going to say like this thing is broken I mean it is messed up I mean I just can't believe it why is it this way Uh, why so much uh, why are people that should be living differently not living in that way you're going to be overwhelmed by that and you're going to think like maybe like why why can't it all be put together and maybe you're even some person that's like 
You've spent your life trying to hold all the plates up so that you can keep it together, to prop it up, to make it look like on this earth that the little kingdom that you've built is like so perfect. You've been trying to work so vigorously to do that. And yet, when you look at things and you see it, you're kind of left with this deal of like, man, if, man, if, if this kingdom thing is left up to man, if it was left up to David, if it's left up to David's kids, if this kingdom is going to, to thrive, and we just got to find the right person in the, in the family, in the kingdom family. We'll, we'll keep it together. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not what you, you... You don't leave thinking like, oh, look at man. Exalt man. Look at the dynasty that they build. Look at the people that they develop. Look what comes out of their loins. And look at how much they've accomplished. You, you don't, when you look at this, you say, well, hold on just a second. Well, let's get a perspective here. One... If there is some moment where you think all the plates are spinning and I've got them in the air, just understand that that's not going to be how it always is. Another thing just to say when we're thinking about all of that is to say when you start to get maybe puffed up in that moment, you better sober up. It's not going to be that way. It's not always going to be. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It's not you're not going to be able to keep these things together. Even in the church, you're sitting there trying to like balance all this out. At the end of the day, what we're seeing in this passage is God's kingdom, although sometimes it looks so ugly in this world, it stands. And the hope is not going to be found in men. Do you remember in Isaiah? In Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, do you know that Israel was really pretty hope-filled? They were finding a lot of hope in a man. And in chapter 6, verse 1, says, in the year that King Uzziah died. This one that they, they thought maybe there's kind of some hope here. But then he died. The only hope in the situation was Isaiah saw. Who did he see? The Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord. And when he saw him, he saw himself. And when he saw himself, he said, woe is me. And then the Lord rescued him from his sin. So we as a people as the people of God, reflecting on the situations in the family. We come back again and again, and we say to one another, our hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We stand on those things. We hope in those things. We know He will will keep His kingdom together. And we can trust that. And we should joyfully anticipate that. And we can know that He is faithful to accomplish it. And that even when it all seems so crazy and dark and broken, there is light. The light of the glorious gospel. And we keep shining it upon one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see evil for evil. We don't have to push it away. We don't have to sweep it under the rug. We can expose it. We can expose it for what it is. We can expose the brokenness. We don't have to try to keep hiding it. We can just show it for what it is. And then we can say there is only one hope for a kingdom where people are involved. And that is that the true king, that he came. He did what they could not do for themselves and he is keeping it together today and one day he's going to make it visibly perfect to us. We will see it in its perfection. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.